tonight. And uh, let's go to, I uh, forgot what it is, Psalm 56. Started to say Psalm 51, but that wouldn't be right. Psalm 56, okay? This is, uh, it always kind of helps to know what in the world is going on in this situation. This is David writing this. So we're back to one of his psalms. He didn't write all of them, but he wrote a lot of them. And usually, have you noticed, David was in some kind of trouble, right, when he writes. There's a few times when he writes and he's excited and happy and all of that. But a lot of times when he writes, there's something else going on. Have you ever noticed, with most people, there's usually more to the story than what you can see. Uh, occasionally you may look at someone and you go, man, what is their problem? And then when you find out what their problem is, then you go, well, no wonder they're grumpy. No wonder they're not real friendly or outgoing. I wouldn't be either if I were in their shoes. But we judge them sometimes without really finding out the rest of the story. So sometimes David's like that. When we read his Psalms, we go, good night, man. What is his problem? And then when you find out the context of it, you go, oh, I'm surprised he's doing as well as he's doing. I don't know that I would handle that situation. Well, this is a psalm that he wrote when he is, um, you may remember that when he was on the run from Saul. Okay? Remember, Saul, the first king of Israel. And remember how everything was kind of set up. When David comes and kills Goliath, Saul is all for him. Saul is all about David. Oh, you can marry my daughter. You can be a part of the family. You can live here at the palace. He's all about him. Then they go to battle, and David is pretty skilled in battle. And when they come back, you know, they had Israel top 40. And you know what the number one song was? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Man, Saul didn't like that. Saul, uh, when he heard the first part of the song, he got kind of puffed up and, you know, Saul has slain his thousands. And then, uh, you know, little pipsqueak David is kind of getting too much of the publicity. And so Saul gets upset about it. Now, we know that Paul had spiritual problems. Uh, remember, the Bible talks about a demonic spirit would overtake him and control him. And David would play his harp and that would soothe him. It's kind of interesting how music can sometimes stir up the enemy and uh, good music can give you freedom and relief from those kind of things, so be careful. And um, it was also during that time that Saul started having mental and emotional problems. And all of a sudden, he would be fine, but all of a sudden he'd pick up a spear and throw it at David. And can you imagine having a spear thrown at you by a family member, by a king? Uh, it's kind of double, you know, whammy, wasn't it? And so David uh, had to run for his life. And remember, uh, this is one of those things that just kind of blesses you. Remember David's friend, Jonathan? And Jonathan was the crown prince. Jonathan was the son of Saul that was supposed to take over the throne. But, you know, even uh, though David had been anointed already when he, you know, years before this to be king. And, you know, Jonathan understood that somehow. And Jonathan was willing to relinquish that because he knew God was in it to David. And uh, in fact, he was used by God to spare David's life. And so David is on the run. Now, do you remember where he went? He went into um, a city called Gath. G-A-T-H. Who do you know that was from the city of Gath? Anybody know? What? Yeah, say it loud if you're going to say it. Make a, make a big mistake. Yeah, make a big mistake. Yeah, Goliath. That's ironic, isn't it? And in fact, when you read in there, what did David walk away with? Goliath's sword. Well, David was familiar with that sword because he used it on Goliath, didn't he? And uh, this starts the beginning of David having to be a fugitive. He's an outlaw. He's on the run. He's a wanted man. There's a price on his head. And uh, David is having to sleep in caves. He's got some men that are loyal to him. That's when he is kind of learning a lot of things. And he's learning about building a team. And um, he is on the run, though. He's had a couple of times when he could have killed Saul. And his men wanted him to kill Saul. And frankly, nobody would have blamed him if he had killed Saul. But David couldn't live with himself. 
Because, uh, you know, Jesus told Peter in the garden when he cut off that guy's ear, those who live by the sword, they die by the sword. I think David sort of understood that all those hundreds of years before, that if he killed the king and took over the kingdom that way, it's just a matter of time before somebody kills him. See, you reap what you sow kind of thing. And so David didn't want to do that. And that's where that famous statement comes that he didn't want to touch God's anointed. That comes up over into the New Testament too when that phrase is used. But at this point, he's talking about the anointed of God. Now, couldn't David have kind of made the case, that's me, you know? I'm the anointed. What's he doing touching me? But David, and I think if you are a mature, godly person, you understand something. Even if other people are violating the law and the principles of God, that's no excuse for you to do it. You've got to live by those things. And again, if David could violate that with Saul then why couldn't somebody violate that with him when he comes to the throne? David wanted to ascend to the throne God's way and in God's time and with God's blessing. And he didn't want any rumors. He didn't want a bunch of people being disgruntled because there were going to be people that uh, did like Saul. Just because God didn't like Saul doesn't mean that the people didn't. Have you ever noticed that? There are a lot of things that God doesn't like that people like. And there are a lot of things that vice versa. Um, the, this world is not always in sync with the will of God. And so we have to stop and think. Even after Saul is no longer the king, were there people that were still loyal to Saul? You bet you. Were there family members still running around from Saul? You bet there were. And so David has to walk the tightrope of being the new guy taking over the kingdom and there can't be any scandal and there can't be any hint that he had Saul assassinated or that he killed Saul or you got instant uprising. This has to be clearly the hand of God. And then even after David became king, do you remember the first thing that he did? He said, is there anyone else alive of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Oh man, this guy knew how to... Remember how... My dad and other old-timers would say, you can attract more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. My question was, why do you want to attract flies anyway? Right? But David knew that principle. And what he was he doing is immediately after he becomes king, he tries to win over those who were left from the house of Saul by showing kindness. And that not only is going to win them over, but even other people are going to look and say, now there's a guy who knows how to do it. He's a wise man. He's a good man. And that's the kind of confidence that you want. You don't want a hothead. You don't want somebody who is vengeful. Uh, Israel is going to have other kings who are going to be just like that. And it never brings peace. And it's always a horrible thing. David was unique. Now, he had his human side. And you can read in his Psalms, and he was just like us. He had his ups, and he had his downs. And boy, his downs were pretty low sometimes. But again, when we look back, we can kind of get an idea of why he may have felt that way. Why that was happening to him. So we learn a lot from David. So this psalm is a psalm of David when he is fleeing to the city of Gath. Fleeing for his life from the king and from the people that he one day would rule over. That's ironic, isn't it? Heaven, the people that you're supposed to rule, they're chasing you. And so David is a wanted man. Listen to what he says. Follow along in the scripture. Verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. And when they lie in wait for my life, shall I, shall, pardon me, shall they escape 
by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I try or when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. Somebody say amen to that. It's a good statement. In God, verse 10, I will praise his word. Notice how he says that several times. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's kind of the second time he said that, so pay attention to that. Verse 12, vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the land of the living? And that's how he ends. So David is having some things in here that he kind of questions and some things that he affirms. That's kind of the way we all do it. Um, I have a lot of times when I have absolutely no problem with the sovereignty of God and I rejoice in it. Oh, God is so good. Look what he's provided. Look what he's done. Look at the way he's defeated the enemy. Look at the way he's opened up a, a, a place for me. I also have probably as many, maybe even more times when I don't particularly like the sovereignty of God. When the sovereignty of God doesn't open up things, when the sovereignty of God leads me into a battle, when the sovereignty of God is taking me through a desert, when the sovereignty of God is kind of leaving me alone and I'm kind of isolated, not by choice, but by circumstance from people that would encourage me or something, I don't like the sovereignty of God so much in that. I'd rather say, Lord, I've got a better idea. See you later. I'm going this way. Uh, and the Lord says, no, you're not. And I have to walk down that path. Sometimes the sovereignty of God is a good thing and a blessed thing, a thing that we rejoice in. We always ought to, of course, but sometimes emotionally it's kind of hard to handle. Why did you lead me here? Why here? Why now? Why this? Kind of hard sometimes. And so David was like us. Take comfort in that. A man after God's own heart that he used greatly is like you and you are like him. And that kind of makes me breathe a sigh of relief. God's dealt with people like me before. He knows how to handle me. He knew how to handle David. He can handle me. He knew how to get David through his enemies. He knows how to get me through my enemies. And so as I thought about this psalm and was reading it, I thought about the context of David having to run for his life, having to defend himself, and here he is, he's feeling very vulnerable, uh, I can say that word, vulnerable. Notice how he talks about them lying in wait. That's word for being sneaky. Commandos, special ops, you don't even know they're there. And he said, and they're marking my steps. In other words, they are watching. There are spies everywhere watching everything David does. See, David doesn't have any hope except for God and God's word, God's promises. God sent the prophet to David when he was a boy watching sheep. And he poured oil over David's head. And he said that David is going to be the king over Israel someday. Well, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. And David's not seeing any crowns anywhere soon, is he? David's not, uh, you know, doesn't look like a king, doesn't feel like a king. And that cave he's sleeping in doesn't feel like a palace. And it doesn't feel like he's being honored or revered. In fact, everything in his life seems like a trap. David has to look at that and says, I trust in your word because there's only one thing he had to go for. Circumstances were speaking against him. But the word of God was speaking for him. And David took it that if the word of God is for him. That means God himself is for him. Because God cannot lie. And God does not change. So whatever promises you find in the word of God. Whatever promises that God says about you. And your identity. And your future. And your hope. And your ministry. And all of those kind of things. Hang on to them. Because God keeps his word. Sometimes we look around and say, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Well, that doesn't mean anything. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. Your problems are small compared to that. 
This is a God who raised Jesus from the dead. If there was ever anything the devil did not want to happen and that the devil would marshal all of his forces and his power and all of his strategy, it would have been to prevent the resurrection. Guess who won? God did. And so when I look at that, I can pray something like this. Oh God, you made the universe out of nothing. You know the stars by name. You control and hold it all together. You're the God. You're the God that brought Israel out of bondage when they said it couldn't be done. You're the God who parted the Red Sea when the people were panicked and they had no faith and you acted because you had promised. And you parted the sea and you drowned the Egyptians and Israel was free. You're the God who parted the Jordan River later on to let that next generation march across into Canaan. And they marched around Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. And I could go on and on and on with that, couldn't I? And you know what that does for me? All of a sudden, I've got this huge, huge problem, and the enemy is attacking, and there's no end in sight, and I just want to curl up in the fetal position and just say, just kill me and make sure it doesn't hurt. But when I recite the mighty works of God, all of a sudden my posture changes. The tone of my voice changes. What I'm feeling in my gut changes. And I go, wait a minute. If God is for me, who can be against me? And I can stand up and I can look a giant. I started to say eye to eye, but eye to belly button. (laughs) Eye to kneecap. Right? And I can say you come against me with a spear and a sword. But I've got a more powerful weapon. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. You're dead. Right? You're dead. Just a matter of time. And when I see that... I can look around and say, you're the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead in victory. Okay, Lord, having said all that, I got this little problem. Oh, it was a big problem a while ago until I started seeing God and his power. Now all of a sudden my problem shrank and God is big. Somebody said, if you've got a big God, you've got little problems. But if you've got a little God, you've got big problems. And God doesn't change. That's all in our mind. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Are we making God bigger? No, He is who He is. But we're making Him bigger in our eyes. Making Him bigger in our experience. Bigger in our emotions. We're putting a magnifying glass on Him. And wow, He's a big, big God. And all of a sudden our problems begin to shrink. That's what David knew and understand. That's why he said in another place, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. See the perspective again? And so David did this all of his life. And this is what you and I are supposed to do as well. Because I've noticed over the time that I've been in the ministry that there are people who know about spiritual warfare who hit the panic button every time something goes wrong. There are some people who know that they wrestle not against flesh and blood, but they can't seem to quit wrestling against flesh and blood. There are people that know they need the armor of God and they need the whole armor of God, but they don't really want to put on the helmet right now and they wonder why they're getting clobbered. They really don't want to put on the breastplate's hot and, you know, I'll, I'll wear some of the other stuff and, you know, right there, right where you're vulnerable because the enemy knows your vulnerabilities. I've known some people who have said things. I've told you this before. A guy in our own church, one time I confronted him about some sin. He goes, don't worry about it. I'll do warfare and it'll be okay. That's a warped view of warfare. Warped view. I I don't know where that guy is right now, but I'd be surprised if he's doing okay with that attitude. I hope some things change. I've also known some people that had the idea that if I do my warfare, and that's kind of uh, like I, I do my little thing here in the morning, then I'm taken care of for the rest of the day. Oh, when we were in Albany, the pastor there had some questions, and we talked about, yeah, well, when you do your warfare, and he goes, excuse me, when do you do your warfare? And it kind of caught us a little bit off guard because you get in the habit of saying things. He said, isn't warfare all day long everything that you do? You know what? He's right. That's what we find in this psalm. 
David wasn't just saying, I'll fight the battle for three minutes and I'll say some things in the morning and then everything will be fine. He said, this is an all-day thing. And we don't understand that demons are not intimidated by something we do in the morning. That doesn't mean they're not going to hit you at 10 o'clock. And if they hit you at 10 o'clock, they may just hit you at 11.30. And about the time you think, oh, okay, they're gone, they're going to flee, they're kind of like if, um, I heard somebody say, if we ever have to fight Red China, one of the things we're going to find out is when you have 200 million in your army, then you fight them and you go, whoo, boy, we won that one, except they just keep sending more after you, don't they? We got that one and then more come. Is this ever going to end? And that's kind of the way it is with the enemy. They don't just stop just because you told them to. They send more. They send more. They send more. And they send more. Anybody ever experienced anything like that? Say amen. Yeah. So David is saying this is an all-day-long battle. And I've noticed that sometimes people forget certain things. And so I want to just kind of give us some reminders tonight. Point number one. What I learned from David's battles is victory is always in the Lord. Okay, somebody say, well, duh. Right? We all know that, or do we? We all know that, or do we? Because the tendency to think is the victory comes because of what I do. I did my warfare. I put on my armor. I read my Bible. Therefore, I ought to be victorious. David would say, excuse me, back up just a little bit. Victory is never guaranteed because of what you do. It is never found in your actions. It is never found in your um, rituals. It's never found in your discipline. All of those things may be good, but that's not where the victory is. The victory is always and forevermore it is with the Lord. And so without the Lord, you don't win. Without the Lord, nothing else works. Without the Lord, you'd be swallowed up. Without the Lord, there'd be no hope. There'd be no relief. And without the Lord, they would wear you down. Somebody said one time, talking about uh, marriage, he said, Solomon said that a wife who is contentious is like a continual dripping. Sammy and I had a friend I, I kind of wonder how they're doing now, but he and his wife had just gotten married, and they came over to our apartment, and they ate supper with us, and she was talking, and she was talking a little too much, and this guy just looked at her and went, drip, drip, drip. I sort of thought it was funny. Um, found out in no uncertain terms, I probably better never do that. Because you didn't think it was funny, did you? Not at all. You know, a drip is a lot of times not a big deal. But man, is it ever annoying, isn't it? And uh, somebody talking about that verse said that, he's uh, talking to uh, women and said, if you nag your husband, said nagging is kind of like being chewed to death by a duck. <laughs> it doesn't really hurt, but oh my goodness, after a while. Oh, right? You know what the enemy does? They don't always attack you in the way you expect. Sometimes it's like a constant dripping. It irritates the snot out of you after a while. It's like a cricket outside of your bedroom window when you're trying to sleep at night. Does that annoy anybody else? Got up in the middle of the night not too long ago and I went and got some bug spray and I just started spraying it everywhere I could think under that window. And he quit for a while, but I didn't get him. Oh, my goodness. And when you think about the enemy, is it always occult-type things? Is it always sexual perversion? Is it always life-threatening things? No, sometimes it's the cricket. It's the dripping. It's the being chewed to death by the duck. And it is constant. And it just 
goes on and on and on, and you go, oh, Lord, when do I ever get any relief? Have any of you had pain that would not get under control? Man, when you can't sleep, when you can't get in a comfortable position, when you can't think, when you can't get any relief from it, all of that kind of stuff that goes on, oh my goodness, it wears you down. Man, I'm, I'm telling you, it is hard to be spiritual when you've got something like that happening. It's hard to be kind when you've got something like that happening. It's hard to be patient when you've got something like that going on. And uh, this is the way that you will find that the enemy sometimes will work. They know you. Sometimes it is an overt frontal assault. You see them, you feel them, and the arrows are flying by your head, and the fiery darts are coming in, and man, you better get going. And when that happens, I don't really have any problem putting my armor on. Do you? Because I can see it. It's kind of like heading for a tornado shelter. I don't do that when the sky is sunny and everything's fine. I don't even do it when the weatherman says I ought to do it. I wait until, okay, you better get in, right? I don't intend to be in there very long. My brother had a tornado shelter, a big box put up, and uh, he had a TV in it and a couch and all kinds of things, and he was telling me all about it, and I go, Good night, Jeff. I don't intend to be in mine any longer than that. I want in and then I want out. Right? I don't want to do that. Especially if I'm in an underground thing. I've got this weird fear of being buried alive. And uh, for some reason that doesn't appeal to me. You know? And so I want out of there. I don't want to go in until I have to and I want to get out. So now when the enemy attacks like that, I can get my, where do I put my helmet? Get my sword and get my shoes and let's get them going and I'm ready to fight. So, you know what the enemy sometimes does? They lie in wait. They mark my steps. They know where I've been. They know where I'm going to be. And they wait and they pounce. Oh, I used to uh, live with Steve and Terry Elkins when I was 20. And they had a Siamese cat. Do you like Siamese cats? I never was a cat hater. But Siamese cats kind of creep me out because they sound like babies when they meow. Weird. And this cat loved to do something. So I was doing youth work, so a lot of times I was out late. So when I would come into the house, I'd come in. I wouldn't turn the lights on. I would walk in there and go back to my bedroom, and the door would be open, and I would, you know, close the door behind me, and that cat would be up on top of the door every time. And about the time I'd close the door, the cat would go, Wah! And jump down on me, and I would oh, throw that cat across the room. And he came back every every night, every night. You know, sometimes the enemy works like that, and it's not funny, is it? About the time you think you've got your ducks in a row, and you think everything's going to be okay, they can figure out a way to pounce on you, and they can pounce on you when you're least expecting it. They pounce on you. Sometimes they do it at church, right? You think you come in here, boy, if there's any place that ought to be peaceful and free and then somebody does something and all of a sudden you're in a bad mood or your feelings are hurt or any number of things can happen. I mean, it can happen anywhere at any time. It can be by people that, that actually are supposed to love you. The enemy can use anybody in new circumstances and it can be physical, it can be mental, it can be, and it's always spiritual and everything like that. Think about it. Sometimes they do it. Isn't that what David is saying? And our victory is not in learning how to handle it, you see, Coming in there and just saying, okay, the cat's going to jump on me, so I'm not going to you know, yell or throw the cat or anything like that. That's not really victory. I want the cat out of there, right? And I want to go to bed, and I want to go without my heart pounding and adrenaline. I mean, you know, have you ever tried to lay down and go to sleep after a cat's jumped on you? And it takes a while to kind of calm down and get to sleep. I, don't, I, don't, I want peace from the Lord. I want to be able to walk and live in a calm manner, not on edge, not waiting for the other shoe to drop, and all of that. I want to have some of his peace, some of his shalom. Now, David has about, I hate to tell you this, David, you're just starting all of this. you got about 10 years to go. You know, Sometimes, aren't you glad you don't know the length of your trials? Whew, boy, you'd give up if you knew that. You just go day by day, step by step, Battle by battle, fight by fight, 
And you resist the enemy in the name of the Lord. You take up your armor and you uh, do what Ephesians chapter 6 says. You are strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So, I said all that to summarize it like this. If you are trusting that your victory is going to come because of what you do, your trust is in the wrong place. It always comes. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Okay, let's move on and see if we can cover more ground here. Number two, um, fear is inviting your enemy to defeat you. Okay? Um, you remember Papa Sam saying, if you don't want the devil to get your goat, then don't tell him where it's tied. Okay? Now, younger people go, what's a goat? What are you talking about? Just an old expression to say, if you don't want someone to really get you where it hurts, then, you know, I don't know why it says get your goat. I don't have any idea. Um, but I was thinking, you know, some of you guys, you're probably going, what in the world are you talking about with goats and all of that? But it's just kind of a clever saying. And you know how we tell the devil where our goat is tied, how he can get it? A lot of times it's through fear. It's through fear. How many times does the Bible have to tell us, fear not, fear not, fear not? Must be important, must be important. And one of the things I noticed reading through the book of Job one time is that Job says to his quote-unquote comforters, ready for this? The thing that I feared the most has come upon me. So how did the devil know how to attack Job where it was going to hurt? All he had to do was look into his fears. See, Job would get up every morning, and this is commendable. This is commendable. He would offer a sacrifice on behalf of his children, for he said, they may have sinned. And I want, he was being a priest of his home. He's being a pastor of his home. He was interceding for them. Good for you, Job. That's, that's a good thing. But I wonder sometimes, even in our devotions, even in our prayers... Does the enemy hear us confessing our fears so that they go, listen to how he's praying. He's terrified. He's terrified that his wife's going to get sick. He's terrified that his kids are going to rebel. He's terrified that the stock market's going to crash about the time he gets ready to retire. He's terrified that the doctor's diagnosis is going to be bad. He is terrified about all of that because that's what you talk about. 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 That's what you pray about. That's what you pray about. And they listen in. They're not dumb. And so your fears are like waving a red flag. You want to attack Greg? Here it is. Here's the best way to do it. Don't do it over there. I won't respond to that. This is where you get me. I would never, ever do that, or do I? And sometimes as we began talking about those things, David said, verse 3, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise His Word. Do you praise the Word of God? And in God, I have put my trust. Have you put your trust in that or in yourself? Because if your trust is in yourself... Then when the enemy attacks, your first thing is, why is this happening to me? I tithed. Why is this happening to me? I go to church on Wednesday nights. Why is this happening to me? I did my warfare. Why is it? See, and you put your trust in you and what you do. David said, it's not here. It's in a place where the devil can't get to it. My trust and my hope is in the Lord. And your fears tell the enemy where you can be attacked. And so you've got to submit those to the Lord. And so they can be emotional battles, choices that we make. And you've got to choose to praise God. You've got to choose to stay in the Word. And you've got to choose to walk by faith no matter what else is happening. You just have to make a choice, batten down the hatches, and just do it. Take up your shield of faith. That's why that shield is there. And why the Bible says in addition to all the other pieces of the armor, you've got to put that up. Because every temptation is a choice to believe God or believe the enemy. Believe God or believe the enemy. And that's what faith really boils down to. Number three, notice that the enemy never lets up. Verse 5 says, all day they twist my words. So people are out there saying, uh, you know, somebody might, um, they might say, uh, well, I wonder how David's doing. You know, I always kind of admired him after he killed the giant and did those things. There was always somebody that say. 
there to say, yeah, yeah, well, David's not all he's cracked up to be. And they twist his words and they make him look like a criminal. They make him look like he's a rebel. They make him look like he's committing treason against Saul. They make him look like he's an enemy of the state. Those kind of things. And you know what? David was hearing about it and it was bothering him. It would bother me too. It would bother me too. They twist my words. But notice the emphasis I want to make is all day they twist my words. That all day. This is something that wasn't letting up on David. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Notice all of them. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. Spies are watching, in other words. And they lie and wait for my life. There he is. We've heard that he's over there and he's in that cave. And we can get him. He always eats at 6 o'clock. Let's get him then. And they're always scheming and always doing that. And David is saying, is there ever any relief from any of this? And no, there's not. This is continual all the time. And the enemy is serious about the battles. We may not be, but they are. And it dawned on me that as I was reading this, the enemy has a plan. You know the four spiritual laws that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Let me tell you something. The devil hates you and he's got a terrible plan for your life. And they're constantly scheming, constantly watching, constantly doing it. So I would ask you the question tonight, do you have a plan? Do you have a strategy? Do you have a defense? Are you aware of these kind of things? Because if not... They're going to take advantage of your weaknesses. So don't just go, well, I think all that's taken care of. Well, then why did Paul write Ephesians chapter 6? Why did he have to feel the need to warn them about that and talk about the uh, protection that we have in the armor of God? Why did he say to the Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not human, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds? Why did he have to say any of that? We better be careful because we have some vulnerabilities. Yes, we have victory in Jesus. And yes, if God be for us, who can be against us? But you got to pick up the weapons. you got to put on the armor. And you got to put on all the armor. And you got to stand. And sometimes people get lured by the enemy. Um, chase us. Come after us. Be preoccupied with us. And I don't find that in the Scripture. We're to be preoccupied with Christ, keeping our eyes on Him who is the author and finisher of our faith. That's where our eyes are supposed to be. So don't let them preoccupy you because they'll pop up everywhere they can to try to get your attention. You'll be watching them all the time and you're going to miss Jesus. So be careful with all of that. But understand they are real. They are working. They want to intimidate you. They want to harass you. And you don't wrestle against flesh and blood no matter how much it feels like you may be wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not the reality of anything like that. And the enemy is serious and you've got to have a strategy. You've got to have a plan and you've got to be aware of what they do because the Bible says we're not ignorant of his devices. And when I read that I go, well, Paul, it sure seems like a lot of people are ignorant of his devices. And that's because they're not in the Word of God. And they don't understand the Word of God. And you can't get your information about the enemy from anywhere else except the Word of God. You've got to get it from the Word. You've got to get it from the Word. And so stay in the Word and learn from the Word. And please don't be the kind of person that goes, I read my da-da-da-da-da, done, now I can get on with my life. And you forget anything about it. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to think about it. And you've got to apply it or you're going to be a victim. And number four is that God sanctifies and disciplines his people first. Now, when I got to verse 7, and you may have a different translation or anything, but look at, uh, look at mine, New King James here. It says, shall they escape by iniquity? Okay, that's a question in my translation of the Bible. Does anybody have anything different than that? Is it a question in everybody's Bible like that? When I thought I had to pause, shall they escape by iniquity? You know what uh, it seems to me that David is saying? They're filled with sin. I'm the man you anointed. You're going to let them get away with this and all of their evil? Now, who hasn't felt like that sometimes? Seems like the lost people, man, they just get away with everything. Seems like people that are set on doing evil, they don't even get arrested. They don't get put in jail. They don't do that. But, man, if I tried to do half of what they do, do you know how quick the cops would be after me? You ever felt like that? I thought about um, when all of the, the things were going on with uh, uh, the Hillary Clinton emails and stuff like that. You know what I thought about that? If I tried that 
and I told the IRS, oh, sorry, they were deleted, what would happen to me? Right? You ever see somebody drive by on the highway and you go, good night, where's a cop when you need one? You know? I wish they'd pull that guy over because I know it would me if I tried doing that. There'd be one, there'd be a motorcycle cop somewhere that I didn't see and they'd be after me. You ever felt like that? It seems to me that David said, shall they escape in their iniquity? You're going to let them get away with this? You see it? Notice, he says, in anger cast down the peoples, O God. That, that seems to me to be the translation of, oh God, do something. Do something. They're doing wrong. I'm running for my life. And they're going back to the palace and eating filet mignon. I'm here in a cave. I can't even start a campfire because somebody might see the smoke. You know? Come on, Lord, do something. You're going to let them escape in their iniquity? I get it. I felt like that. And then he says in verse 8, You number my wanderings. Okay, I'm kind of noticing here that wanderings are usually not good. I'm supposed to follow the Lord and his leadership. I'm not supposed to wander. And it's like David says, You keep track when I go astray, and you're doing nothing for them? You put my tears in a bottle... They're causing the tears. Why aren't you doing anything to them? Now that's a very common theme in Psalms. Why do the heathen prosper? You ever read that? Why are people getting away with this kind of stuff? Can I ask you a question? Have you ever thought that? You ever felt that way? Yeah. This is the way it goes. And so we find here... That David said, you sure deal with me. Now, here's the deal. Lord, this isn't fair. All of the corruption, all of the junk, and yet you just busted my bridges. How come you don't do that? I had an uncle one time. He got stopped. California, they lived in California. Cop pulled him over. And my uncle said, all these other people, all these other people are flying by me. Catch them. Get after the speeders. And he said, well, we didn't, but we got you. And he grinned. Right? You ever felt like that? You know what that means? You're saved. God doesn't spank the devil's children. But he does spank his, doesn't he? Hebrews chapter 12. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You know what David was actually saying here? This doesn't seem fair. You keep track whenever I take one step off the path and here you are. Look at what they're doing. And You know what David should have been saying? Same thing you and I should say. You must love me an awful lot. <laughs> Think about that. Does the Lord love you? Yeah, a lot. Because I can't get away with anything. Can you? It's because the Lord has his eye on you. And the Lord is guiding your footsteps. And the Lord wants to bless you. And the Lord is teaching you and training you. Well, how come they get away with it? Because they're on their way to hell anyway. Let them have their fun. I'm dealing with you. I'm dealing with you. And so when David is going through this, this time, this decade, is that God just being unfair? And God going, how are we going to pull this off? And, oh, I didn't see this coming. No, it's God training David to reign. I want to just say this to you. Your trials are your training for reigning. You know why? Because in the kingdom of God, when he sets up his earthly kingdom, he is going to give responsibilities in that kingdom to you and to me. And what you are doing right now and what you are going through and your faithfulness in your trials and in what you don't understand is training you to reign one of these days. Because if you're faithful in the little things, he'll make you faithful over much. Some of you may get to be the governor of Oklahoma in the millennial kingdom, right? There's an old story about a guy that died and went to heaven. And he was shocked when the angel was showing him around on the streets of gold. Man, a Rolls Royce flew by. And the guy goes, cars? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Rolls Royce? And he goes, yeah. He goes, it's 
It's awesome. What, what in the? And then he saw Fords and Chevys and a Volkswagen and a Toyota and some things like that. And he goes, okay, you got to explain this to me. And the angel says, yeah, well, it's kind of a reward for how well you did on earth. Get transportation. That guy in the Rolls Royce, he did very well. Guy in the Ford, he did okay. And they were walking along and there was a guy that was sitting under a tree with his bicycle propped up. And he was laughing and carrying on. And the angel said, what are you laughing for? All you got was a bicycle. And the guy goes, yeah, but my pastor went by on roller skates. <laughs> There's uh, not too much truth in that, but there is a little bit of a principle. What you do and how faithful you are in the small things here on earth is setting you up for reigning with him in the millennial kingdom on earth. We're going to reign with him. How many times is that in the Bible? He's going to reign forever and ever, and we're going to reign with him. Okay? What are you doing with what you have? Don't waste your battles. Don't waste your trials. Face them head on. Lean into them and learn everything God wants you to learn because it is training for reigning. That's what you and I are going through right now. He said, boy, I must be you know, getting ready to handle a lot. You may be. You may be. And uh, the bigger the battle, the greater the blessing. Okay? Now, the fifth thing, and we'll be finished on all of this, is the declarations. I thought it was interesting that David, in his warfare, what he was fighting, he found it necessary to make some declarations. I think it would help you. He said in verse 11, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Boy, that's a strong declaration. He's talking to himself. He's talking to his enemies. Even though he doesn't know where they are, they're not around, he's going to go ahead and make the declaration anyway, right? You and I need to make these kind of declarations, these affirmations. They're life-changing. Verse 12, vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. You know what he's saying? I don't care what man does. I don't care what circumstances say. I don't care what my emotions are saying. And I don't care what my enemies are saying or anything. I will be faithful to God. And there are some days you have to just wake up and things start working against you. And you have to say, it doesn't matter. I will trust God. He's going to take care of me. I'm going to be faithful to what he says. When all of the culture is pushing against you, you say, no, I'm not going to do that. I will be faithful to God. I know what I believe, and I know in whom I have believed, and I know that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, and that settles it. Am I right? The more you do that, the more you do that, the stronger you're going to be. The more you do that, the more you're going to be in a position where you don't crumple, but you stand. And you stand firm in that declaration with your belt of truthfulness on. You're committed to fight the battle. You're not a hypocrite. That's what that belt means. You've got your breastplate of righteousness on so that your feelings and your thoughts, heart and abdomen, feeling thoughts in your heart, feelings in your abdomen are protected. You're not ruled by those. You're ruled by righteousness, the righteousness of God. You stand firm. Your shoes dig in because they have spikes on them. And it means you have the readiness of the gospel, the good news, that you have peace with God. And you stand firm because you know that God is on your side and you have his resources. You put on the helmet of salvation because you know you're saved and you know you belong to God and he is faithful to his word and he has promised to deliver you out of this present evil age. And you take up your sword, which is the word of God, and you are able to fight off and fend off the blows that the enemy brings your way and you're also able to get a jab in every once in a while. And then you take up the shield of faith that quenches the fiery darts of the wicked ones because you know God never lies. And you're always right when you side with him. You're always right when you believe him. And you quench the fiery darts of temptation when you stand behind your shield of faith. Put on the whole armor of God and having done all to stand. Because when the dust settles down and the noise clears out and the smoke clears... You're standing and the enemy has fled.
And then the father says, take up your weapons and march on. And then you take off and you go to another battle. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. You make these declarations. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I think he's talking to himself. Vows made to, the, uh, to you are binding upon me, O Lord. Your word is true and mine is too. And I will render praises to you. You don't wait till you feel like it to praise the Lord. You praise him regardless. For you have delivered my soul from death. Now David's looking back and he's going, Ah, oh, another battle? And then he goes, wait a minute. We won that one. Why can't we win this one? Okay. We've been here before. You've delivered me before. You'll do it again. The Apostle Paul talks about the Lord who has delivered us, who is delivering us, and who will deliver us. That deliverance is just, it's yours. And it's secure in all of that. Make that declaration. You have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light, in the light of the living? In other words, David is just saying, you did it before, are you not going to do it again? You kept your promises in the past, are you not going to keep them now? You met my needs in the past, who am I to think you won't do it now? God is a faithful God. I think the bottom line David is trying to get across in his own troubled soul is, maybe sometimes you need to say to your thoughts and your emotions, be quiet, shut up. God is true. You're lying. God is true. God is faithful. And you enter into the victory that God has already won. And when you do that, you're in a good position to stand and be victorious as you fight the battle and as you march on through whatever God has for you because you realize, oh, God's got it. God's got this. It's rigged. I'm going to be okay. Jesus is walking with me, and he's already equipped me to win the battles that I face. Praise his holy name. Hallelujah. To God be the glory. Let's go ahead and shout for the victory and the triumph, because it's already ours in Jesus Christ. Okay? Does that encourage you tonight? Okay. Well, let's pray. And let's try to encourage somebody else. Um, pray for uh, Gail Hudler. She had surgery today and she...